Hello. You are listening to Magribin Past and Present Podcast. A space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. The lecture, part of the History of the Maghreb, History in the Maghreb Lecture Series, is organized by the Centre d'études Maghrebines en Algérie and the Public Affairs section of the Embassy of the United States of America in Algeria and was recorded at the SEMA in Iran, Algeria on the 8th of November 2017, celebrating the 75th anniversary of Operation Torch. In this podcast, we welcome Mr. Vincent O'Hara, independent scholar and naval historian, presenting his award-winning book titled Torch, North Africa and the Allied Path to Victory. Also, we are pleased to welcome His Excellency John de Rocha, Ambassador of the United States of America in Algeria, as moderator of the conference. It's wonderful to be back. Uh, I've, I've been in uh, Algeria only six weeks, but I've already been to Iran twice. Uh, and I'm very happy to be back. I'm very happy to be back for this reason. Um, uh, this is a real pleasure for me because the Second World War has you know, been an interest of mine for a long time. Uh, although I uh, admit to a gap in my knowledge um, in this part of uh, US participation in the war, I have to say. Uh, but it's a real privilege for me to uh, be able to welcome and introduce uh, Vincent O'Hara, who is a very esteemed and well-regarded historian and writer uh, on the Second World War and the naval history of the Second World War. Um, he's contributed uh, far too many articles uh, to, that can be named to, to uh, various uh, magazines and journals on history and, and has written 11 books Um, on uh, naval history, the most recent one being about Operation Torch, North Africa and the Allied Path to Victory, which I just discovered, to, to my regret, is not available in a Kindle version because I just looked just now. Um, it is in Kindle in the United States, it? Amazon, yes. Oh, well, I must be looking in the wrong place. Okay, well, then I'll look again. But uh, <laughs> you didn't come here to hear from me. You came here to hear from Vincent O'Hara. So without any further ado, I will turn it over to you. Well, I thank you for that. Very kind introduction. Um, it's such a pleasure to be in Algeria and be able to speak about something that I've spent six, seven years of my life studying. Uh, today, in the morning, I was at Santa Cruz and be able to look down on the harbor and Mirza al-Kabir for me was such a special opportunity, such a special thing you know, to, see, to see things that I've um, written about and studied in real life. I've been in Algeria... Four days now, I guess. This is my first time in Africa, so I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I'm kind of interested to see that Operation Torch is a blank page for most people here. They know very little about it. I've spoken to four different groups, mostly young people, students, university level, and nobody's ever even heard of it. Unfortunately, this is pretty much the same thing in the United States as well. Operation Torch, for a number of reasons, is not an event that is well known and well understood. And this is a shame because in many respects, Operation Torch was the foundation, it was the cornerstone of the Allied victory in World War II. 
and understanding Operation Torch and understanding the process of things that happened in that operation is, in my opinion, fundamental for appreciating why the Americans and the British and their allies were able to prevail in that, in that all-important war. This is a typical picture of Torch. You see American troops, all these little um, white patches are United States flags coming ashore on a beach in Algeria. It looks very peaceful, looks very serene. But you, if you look at this picture carefully, you'll see there's problems here. Uh, such a peaceful beach, how come two landing craft are stranded? We'll get into that in just a little bit. First question is, why is Operation Torch so important? What's, what's, what is it about this operation that we should know about? In military terms, it was the first joint and combined operation of the war, first major one. And by joint, I mean it was the very first time that the Americans and the British had to cooperate to conduct a joint strategy. This was an, this was an operation that both sides agreed upon. Uh, using joint command, you had American generals commanding British troops, you had British admirals commanding American ships. And if you're a military, you know that this is not something that most nations uh, quickly agree to, to have foreigners, as it were, command each other's forces. But if the Americans and the British were going to defeat the Germans, they needed to come up with some sort of template for cooperating. Uh, cooperation is not always an easy thing in military terms. It never was something that the Axis powers never really quite grasped. I mean, the Germans were always perfectly willing to lead, but um, they, they weren't very good followers when it came to joint warfare with the Italians, for example. The second thing that's most important about Torch is it was the very first U.S. offensive of World War II to be conducted in the Old World. Already the United States had been in, in the war for almost a year, but we had done all of our fighting against the Japanese. We hadn't engaged the Germans anywhere. We hadn't engaged the Italians anywhere, except, of course, against the submarines in the, in the Atlantic. So it was the very first offensive, and it was also very important that the United States succeed. You know, failure wasn't really an option for us at that point. There was a lot of sentiment in the United States for continuing the offensive against Japan and to kind of ignore Europe and Africa. In fact, if President Roosevelt had said, let's do that, he would have had the support of the nation because almost everybody who was receiving one of those little letters from the uh, War Department saying, your son has been killed, those people were fighting in the Pacific. The Germans hadn't really killed anybody yet. And plus there's racial and, and other, other factors involved. So Torch was important because it was the very first time that the Americans were fighting in the old world. In the context of 1942, we think that Allied victory was inevitable, but it really wasn't. It was a time of crisis and a time of defeat for the Allies. Uh, the Russians, for example, were being defeated by the Germans. The Germans had reached Stalingrad. The battle for Stalingrad was waging in full fury. And at the time, it appeared that the Germans were going to win that battle. In the Mediterranean, Malta, the British island in the middle of the Mediterranean, was was cut off. It was only weeks away from surrender due to starvation. So the point here is that the Axis powers controlled the Mediterranean. And in the Pacific, the Americans had a toehold on Guadalcanal, but that toehold was very tenuous, and the Japanese were gearing up for their biggest counterattack yet. So in the Pacific as well, it, it, you know, there were a lot of things teetering on the balance. To conduct a major operation 
in North Africa was for the Allies, for the Americans in particular, an enormous gamble. These are the reasons why torch is so important. Let's do this differently. <clears throat> I think most people associate the Allied victory in World War II with a series of amphibious operations. You know, we all know about perhaps Husky when Sicily was invaded. We know about Anvil, the invasion of southern France. We certainly know about D-Day, the invasion of northwestern France in 1944. In the Pacific, you had a whole series of, of battles. You had the invasions of, just name the major ones, Saipan, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, and the Philippines. So we think of how did the Allies win World War II, and I think we associate that with a series of amphibious operations. Well, in 1942, all these operations were in the future. None of them had happened yet. In fact, most of the operations that the British, in particular, had, had um, undertaken up until 1942 had been failures. The British had tried to invade West Africa, Dakar, in 1940 and were defeated. Uh, in Dieppe, in 1942, they tried to uh, take a port in France, and it was a bloodbath. Thousands of Canadians were killed. But in minor operations as well, Castelloriso against the Italians, Bardia against the Italians, Tobruk against the Italians and the Germans, uh, Litany River in Syria against the French, all these had been failures. <clears throat> the thing about amphibious warfare is it's the most difficult of all military operations to undertake. We think that it's just a simple matter of sending a ship to a beach and putting the troops on a little boat and having them walk ashore. Well, it's not that way. In 1942, the Allies really didn't know how to conduct amphibious warfare successfully or effectively, and I think their record speaks to that. We didn't know, for example, much about, or we had no agreement upon what was the best way to arrive off the beachhead, what was the best way to navigate these little boats to arrive at the very right beach at the very right time, what's the best way to manage the beach after the, after the little boats have arrived. What's the best way to unload supplies and move them inland? What's the best way to conduct gunfire support? You know, to have your big ships offshore bombarding the, the enemy. Uh, what's the best way to load your transports? I mean, these are all very important questions. And, and failure in any one of these aspects can result in failure to the entire operation. So these were all questions that the Allies had. We didn't know, how, for example, how to unload ships. We used rope nets. We used rope ladders. We used chain nets, we used uh, chain ladders. These cut the soldiers' hands so they were dropped. Even in one operation, they had orchard ladders to uh, transport um, troops from ships to boats. So there were a lot of open questions here, and we really didn't know what we were doing. That's another reason why Operation Torch was so fundamental to our um, understanding of how to conduct warfare and, and amphibious operations. Given this context of uncertainty and developing doctrine, I hope you can see the torch, as it was taken, was a very risky operation. I mentioned that an imperative of the United States was the need to fight Germans. President Roosevelt had identified the Germans as being the number one enemy of the, of the Americans, uh, the biggest threat to Allied victory, and in that I think he was correct. And in March 1942, only a couple months after the Americans had entered the war, the Army's Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, had come up with a plan to defeat Germany. His plan was to land an American army in France, excuse me, in Great Britain, 
and to invade France, northwestern France, in May 1943. He called the buildup of forces in Britain Operation Borlero. He called the possible need to undertake an emergency invasion of France, Operation Sledgehammer. This was to be undertaken only if it appeared the Germans were going to defeat the Russians. And the operation to invade France itself was called Roundup. Well, Marshall went to London, introduced these ideas to the British. The British seemed to agree, uh, but they did this only because they considered his plan to be infeasible. They thought that invading the Germans in France would be an act of suicide. However, the American-British alliance was still brand new, and the British were probably a little bit too polite to say this to Marshall directly. In fact, Winston Churchill's military chief of staff, General Ishmay, had later wrote in his diary, perhaps would have obviated future misunderstandings if we had been more forthcoming with our true views of the Americans. Well, by June, the British had to tell the Americans we're not going to conduct Operation Sledgehammer, even if Russia's defeated. And they said, we're not going to conduct Operation Roundup unless conditions are perfect. This was kind of a bombshell to the Americans. They had been expecting an invasion of France. Moreover, President Roosevelt had told the Russians in May that, yes, indeed, there's going to be a second front in 1942. You can, you can be assured of that. <clears throat> Moreover, the American elections were happening in November, and President Roosevelt really wanted to see American troops fighting somewhere in the old world before the elections. So there are political reasons for this as well. Well, given the fact that the British were dropping out of General Marshall's plans, he sent Marshall, he sent Admiral King, the head of the U.S. Navy, and Harry Hopkins to London to come up with some sort of idea, where can we have a second front? You know, we need to fight the Germans somewhere. The list of possibilities with France off the table was, was quite short. You had Egypt. The Americans could join the British Eighth Army, but the Americans didn't like that idea. Uh, Churchill was in favor of Norway, but the Americans and the British admirals and generals all thought that was kind of a, a very, very poor idea. And the only possibility was French, French North Africa. Uh, the British had had plans to invade North Africa for more than a year now, and they were able to convince the Americans that this was something that had to be done. The Americans were not necessarily enthusiastic about this idea. In fact, they left London feeling that they had been manipulated, but there was really no other choice if the, if the military was, gonna, was going to fulfill Roosevelt's promise. <clears throat> Planning for the operation had to be undertaken immediately. They agreed upon Operation Torch. By the way, Churchill gave the operation this name. Uh, the British operation to take North Africa was called Gymnast. But he, uh, the, he felt that this was not a very inspiring name. He thought the torch was a much, much more inspiring name. Operation was approved on July 24th. It was supposed to happen on October 15th. The British agreed to an American commander. They thought they were going to get General Marshall, but instead they got Dwight D. Eisenhower, who at the time was a relative nobody. He had just been promoted to Major General. As it turned out, this was kind of a genius choice because Eisenhower got the concepts of joint and combined. He <clears throat> didn't tolerate subordinates, for example, who 
were anti-British in their attitudes or even said bad things about the British. He didn't tolerate subordinates who put their service ahead of the other services. So combined, the fact that you have air, land, and sea forces operating together, in the context of 1942, rivalry between, for example, the Army and the Navy was a very common thing. And, and sometimes, in some respects, they seemed to fight their own separate wars. So Eisenhower got everybody to work together. And I think this was critical, was critical to the success of Torch. In fact, in my studies uh, of this event, I was born when Eisenhower was president. In my studies of this event, I, I came away with a deep respect for the man. I think he was really the right man for the job. And the key to success here was cooperation. Planning was rushed. Uh, training was even more rushed. Just to give you an example, I could go on about training for two hours, but I won't. Just to give you an example, in one very important dress rehearsal, the Americans landing in Morocco uh, practiced a full-scale invasion of, of the shores of Maryland. They gave themselves an unfair advantage. They had a lighthouse flashing a beacon on the beach they were supposed to land on. However, of more than 60 landing craft, only one managed to find the right beach, and the rest were strewn up and down the shore of Maryland. It was kind of a harbinger of things to come. This was a practice, but a lot of the ships didn't even have a chance to practice. Uh, captain of one such ship, the Charles C. Carroll, who was being converted into an amphibious transport, which takes time, he wrote about his boat crews that they were completely unskilled, didn't know navigation, didn't know how to even take care of their boats, like they were in utter darkness. The plan that finally evolved called for landings in North Africa at five sites, three in Morocco and two in Algeria. This plan was a compromise. The Americans wanted to land in Morocco because they were nervous about their lines of communication with the United States. They felt that if they came through the Straits of Gibraltar, Spain being a pro-Axis power, could shut the gates and trap the American Navy and Army inside the Mediterranean. They thought this was a possibility. Uh, the British were not so worried about this. They'd been fighting in the Mediterranean for three years, and they didn't think Spain was going to do anything. Um, they wanted to land all the way on the borders of Tunisia and in Algeria. The Americans said this is far too risky. The operation almost foundered on this point. In fact, the Allies couldn't agree where to land. This cost valuable time. Finally, another compromise was reached. The Americans found some extra shipping. They found some extra troops to allow for another landing in Algiers. Uh, the British still felt this was, was way too conservative. They were afraid that the Axis powers would land in Tunisia. Sicily was only 60 miles across the Straits of Sicily, and that the whole object of taking North Africa would be frustrated by the Germans. But this was the plan they finally came up with. It's also important to stress the fact that at this time, North Africa was a French possession. It was part of the French Empire. It was not occupied by Germans. There were no German soldiers in, a, in North Africa, regardless of what you've seen in Casablanca. I mean, there was an armistice commission, but I think there was 26 men in that. It was controlled by French troops. France was a defeated nation. They'd come to an armistice with the Germans. The Germans occupied 60% of the mainland of France, but the southern part of France, with the capital at Vichy, was still independent. It was still a neutral country. The United States had an ambassador in Vichy. 
So the United States had normal relations with uh, France as a neutral country. We had councils in the North African cities. The head of state of the French, the French state was Marshal Pitan. He was 85 years old when he came to power in 1940. He was 87 years old at the time of the North African landings, which is kind of an advanced age for a head of state. He um, kind of took on responsibility for the armistice. The French army swore personal loyalty to him. I don't think that the Americans and the British really appreciated how deep the French loyalty to the Pétain ran and how important he was to the French concept of honor. The, the fact that France had been defeated was a, a blow to their honor, and the fact that Pétain was taking responsibility for it, this kind of relieved them responsibility for that, that um, shame, uh, necessary to feel shame for that, for that event. The Americans, however, had reason to think they'd get some cooperation in North Africa. There was a, there was a, um, a group of men called the Group of Five, which included two division generals. They were trying to bring France back into the war on the Allied side. This little slide shows you the American second-in-command, General Mark Clark, and his naval attache, Captain Wright, paddling in a kayak. They did this because they were meeting with the head of the French conspirators, General Mast, at a farmhouse about 70 miles to the, to the west of Algiers. They arrived by submarine. Uh, the French general came by car. The Americans received advice on where to land. Uh, the French told them what kind of help they would need. But even though we went to such a great extent seeking French cooperation, we didn't uh, tell the conspirators when the operation was going to take place. We told them that it was probably going to be in early 1943, when in fact the invasion was only 16 days away. Uh, one of the really interesting aspects about Operation Torch was the amount of risk that the Allies were willing to take. You see here a map of the convoys that set out to invade Africa. We had two convoys crossing an entire ocean from two different continents coming to a third continent. In the context of World War II up until 1942, nothing but nothing on this scale had ever been undertaken before. There were 74 American warships and 32 transports, more than 100 ships, leaving Virginia on October 23rd. There were more than 240 British transports, American transports and auxiliaries, and 94 British warships leaving the United Kingdom bound for Algeria. Just to give you um, an idea of how massive this movement was, the first convoy left on October 2nd, the day that the final plans were um, agreed upon by the British and American Chiefs of Staff, and the last convoy left on November 1st. So over a period of a month, you had all these ships coming to Africa. The Americans were afraid of submarines, uh, the British were too, and the bad weather. Fortunately, strongly escorted military convoys did not have that much to fear from submarines. The weather proved poor, but the Americans made the decision to land in Morocco anyway, despite fears of the surf, and it was fortunate that they did. They were, the surf moderated, they were able to come ashore, and they appeared off Africa completely by surprise. Uh, the British and American troops coming to Algiers had no such luxury. 
They had to come through the Straits of Gibraltar, again right here. There were Axis agents located there. They carefully counted and tabulated every single ship that came through. You can read the Italian intelligence reports, and they, they, they're giving an hour-by-hour -hour blow. We've had two carriers, the four escorts come through. We've had 19 transports come through. So they, they knew that something was happening. They knew that a big event was on the way. The Germans thought that the Allies were going to land in Libya behind the lines of General Rommel, who had just been defeated by Montgomery, but who was still located in Egypt. The French, for some reason, thought that all these forces were going to come ashore at Malta. Malta, like I said, was on the verge of starvation. The Italians said, no, North Africa is the target. Oran and Algeria, in fact. Oran and Algiers. But the uh, French and the Germans didn't accept this interpretation, even though it turned out to be correct. I'm going to focus a little bit on the landings in Algiers and Oran. The important thing about the Algiers landings are two. You can see that there were three different points that the uh, Allies came ashore. There's a British landing here. The object was to take the airfield to build up and send a regiment to take Algiers. The Americans were supposed to land in a tight little package of about a mile wide in the beaches immediately to the west of Algiers. They were supposed to cross the headland and appear in the city of Algiers about four hours after landing in the morning of, of uh, November the 8th. An American battalion carried in two British destroyers, this is joint warfare, was supposed to land directly on the docks of Algiers. And a strong American force was supposed to land to the east and take the airfield and then the city itself. Well, the landings were a mess. Just to give you one example, the forces coming ashore on this one-mile front here ended up landing all the way from here to the city of Algiers. They were spread across an extent of 20 miles. This happened for a number of reasons. Uh, poor navigation. There were supposed to be little boats offshore with lights flashing saying, you know, land here, land here, land here. But the little boats couldn't find the right beaches. They, they were all up and down the coastline. There was a really strong current which was pushing the ships away from their positions at a rate of five knots an hour, or five knots, I should say. A strong winds, they had map bearers. They, they had the location of the beaches off by 2,000 yards, which is pretty critical if you're trying to land at a precise point. And they had communication difficulties. The British and the Americans didn't have the same radio protocol, for example. And it turned out when they were trying to cooperate in action, uh, they couldn't speak e to each other effectively. The radios that the Americans had were too heavy, over 100 pounds, try lugging that if you're um, coming ashore on a, on a landing craft. So the landings were a mess. I think fortunately for the Allies, the head of the French military, by chance, Admiral Francois Darlin, happened to be in Algiers. He was attending a sick son. To make a very long and complicated political military story very, very short, uh, once he appreciated the extent of the Allied landings, he agreed to an armistice. And fighting ended at nine at three o'clock that afternoon, even though American troops were still far short of their objectives. So Iran fell relative, excuse me, Algiers fell relatively easily uh, due to political arrangements at the time, even though the landings themselves, if they had been um, going in against Germans and, and France, would have been probably pretty tragic. The landings in Iran, oh excuse me, before I get to Iran, I'm going to show you this picture really quickly. 
I think it's kind of interesting because it shows you all the major participants in this operation. You see a couple of American soldiers standing right here. You see some British sailors over here. The rest of the, the, rest of the personnel are mostly British troops. What's interesting is you see a couple of Algerian uh, young men kind of observing the operation. And they're being ignored. The uh, troops are completely ignoring them. Most histories, most histories written in English about Operation Torch also ignore the <clears throat> Algerians or the Moroccans, as the case may be. It's not a topic that receives a lot of attention. Maybe future history will, will address this. I think there's a need to do studies on this. It's important to say, however, that there were examples of cooperation between American soldiers and, and native authorities. In uh, Safi, for example, the American colonel came to an agreement with the head of the town, and he was supplied longshoremen, stevedores, to unload his transports. This got the transports unloaded very, very quickly, and it prevented any sort of sniping and pilfering, which had been a problem before that time. So I just say that there were cases where there was cooperation. It was not an official policy, but when it was practiced, it turned out to be very successful. Oran, uh, again, three landings, one to the east, two to the west, and one within the harbor itself. There was also a paratroop drop uh, was taking place actually very close to where we are right here. There were supposed to, 26 aircraft were supposed to land, supposed to drop their paratroopers on the um, airport of Oran. The landings here went a little bit better. Uh, there was still a large loss of landing craft. The resistance, however, was far stronger. The paratroopers, for example, only three airplanes found the right target. Uh, four airplanes were shot down by French fighters, and the vast majority of the planes landed their troops on the dry lake bed, uh, far to the west of their objective. Resistance, like I said, was strong. Uh, American troops of the 1st Division, for example, ran into the 16th Algerian Rifle Regiment at the town of St. Cloud, right here. The town was supposed to fall the first morning. It resisted for three days. The Algerians proved to be very effective in standing off the American troops. Fighting finally ended. On the 10th of November, Oran had not yet fallen. It probably would have that day because American armor was approaching it. But it, it, uh, fighting stopped as a consequence of a ceasefire that was ranged in Algiers between Admiral Darlin and General Mark Clark, the guy that you saw paddling the kayak. So resistance continued for three days. It was certainly tougher than the Americans expected. They didn't get the cooperation or the... Um, the um, help they expected, and they were actually quite surprised at how strong the, the French forces, and by French forces I mean the forces under French command, resisted them. I'm not going to talk about Morocco. There were three landings in Morocco, Port Laoti, off near Casablanca at Fidala, and Safi, far to the south. Uh, these landings encountered great resistance. In fact, at Port um, Laoti, the French counterattacks drove all the way to the beachhead. Uh, Americans bombarded Casablanca. You see here a picture of the brand-new battleship USS Massachusetts. She just entered service in October 1942. She had never been in action before. She took on the, the French battleship Jean Bart in Casablanca Harbor. The largest naval battle fought in the Atlantic in World War II 
was fought off Casablanca between French destroyers, cruiser submarines, and American battleship heavy cruisers like cruisers destroyers. Uh, no other battle, even with involving the Germans, even involving things ships like Bismarck or um, Tirpitz, was larger than the Battle of Casablanca. It's important because the French destroyers came within 5,000 yards of the American transports. They could have completely defeated the landings if they had continued a couple thousand yards further, but there were oil fires and they, the visibility was bad. They didn't know how close they came to success. Uh, very interesting story, but unfortunately I don't have the time to get into it here. I will say that the ceasefire in Algiers ended the fighting in Morocco. Uh, Casablanca was still several days away from being captured. It was still completely intact. The troops at Port Laoti were running out of ammunition. Their situation was very perilous. So the armistice came in good time for the troops in Morocco. The whole objective of the operation was to take Tunisia to completely conquer French North Africa. Uh, unfortunately for the Allies, due to um, the delay of the armistice, due to the fact that they didn't land as far to the east as they perhaps could have, due to the fact that the weather on the 9th turned bad and operations that were supposed to take place further east were impossible, this didn't happen. The Germans landed paratroopers in Tunis on the 9th, the day after the Allies came ashore. The first Italian convoy landed in Basarte uh, over here on the 12th. Axis forces were able to meet Allied spearheads outside of Tunis. They pushed them back, and what followed was a six-month campaign to complete the conquest of North Africa. This was not what was supposed to happen, and it certainly made impossible any landings in France in 1943. So what are our takeaways from this operation? I've given you a very, very quick overview. Uh, the first takeaway is that it was very risky. The Allies took big chances in invading North Africa. Second takeaway is that the North African campaign, Operation Torch, failed to achieve all of its major objectives. It failed to conquer North Africa in th three weeks like it was supposed to, and it failed to open up the Mediterranean to routine shipping like it was supposed to. What it did do, however, and this is very, very important to the Allied success in World War II, what it did do was it gave the Americans and the British a template for understanding what they needed to do to work together. It gave them a valuable experience. They identified things that did not work in practice, radio communications being a big example. They needed to come up with standardized ways of doing things. It gave them important experience at landing, at holding, conducting a major, major, major amphibious operation where the stakes of defeat were not necessarily <clears throat> failure in the war. It gave them an opportunity to see what worked, what did not work, and you'll see the results of that experience in the landings that followed. Operation Husky, most of the landing craft found the right beaches. The losses of landing craft were not what they were in Operation Torch. We lost more than half of our landing craft in the very first landings. By the time of D-Day, the Americans and the British were able to put five divisions ashore against very, very heavy opposition and succeed. And all this is due to the influence of Operation Torch. It's underappreciated in the United States. I feel it's underappreciated in Algeria. But this was the way, this was the first step on the Allied path to victory. So I, I have enjoyed giving you this brief overview of Operation Torch. There's so much I haven't talked about. There's so much I've glossed over, so much I've skipped. 
But I hope this does give you an appreciation for how important the operation was. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's, it's such a pleasure to talk about something I'm so involved in. So, And I mean, we sort of opened this discussion by noting that um, the events that we discussed were are, are, are little known in the United States and, and little known here. Um, I thank you and I thank all of you for coming to, for, for changing that at least just a little bit. Um, and that's how we start. Uh, and we will continue to, to, to try to fill in these gaps uh, of our knowledge of each other. So uh, I am as uh, grateful to all of you for coming as I am to Vincent for his presentation. Uh, it's been really terrific. I want to invite all of you. Uh, we'll be having a small ceremony tomorrow morning at 730 at Santa Cruz uh, to remember uh, those who perished in the operation. Uh, you're all quite welcome. Um, sorry that it is so early. Uh, but uh, we will be there at Saturday de Me tomorrow, and you are most welcome. We have uh, a few tiny mementos here if you would like to come to collect one of uh, a little uh, Algerian-American cooperation, which we are happy to share with you. Um, but with that, let me thank Bob and, and Sima for helping to put this together. Vincent for for taking the time to come here and for you uh, very much the same um, uh, for I certainly uh, feel a lot more knowledgeable about a very important part of our mutual history and, and I hope that you do as well. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, themagripodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, click like on our Facebook page, Magrebin Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the SEMA newsletter at sema-northafrica.org. Or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.